Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier with Lindsay Reid. He's the uh, CEO of Minbos Resources. They're an ASX-listed phosphate developer with a project in Angola. And he talks us through their plans of getting into production, uh, market conditions at the moment, and how they hope to tackle it. If you want our thoughts and opinions on that conversation, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis. There's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of commodities and companies, which you might find useful and insightful. Plus, there are training courses on there help you with your diligence process. We've done summaries of interviews to um, save you some time because we know you're busy. And more importantly, there's a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe, friendly environment, free from trolling, abuse, and judgment. If that sounds nice to you, go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Lindsay, how are you, sir? I'm very, very well, Matthew. Thank you. Glad to hear it. What, what time of the day? Where are you? Let's start with that. Well, uh, Perth in Western Australia. Uh, it's about seven o'clock, almost seven o'clock. Um, I'm hoping that the thunderstorms that are flying by don't actually clap too loudly out the window as we're, as we're doing this interview. So we're getting some unseasonally wet weather. Uh, but we remain, as always, pretty much COVID-free. We had our case about two months ago and he successfully didn't pass it on to anybody, and uh, we we're all uh, out of lockdown, but locked in. You Aussies showing off about your COVID rates, um, right? <laughs> well, look, thanks for joining us. It's, we've not heard this story before. Uh, I'm kind of intrigued um, by it. Certainly, the area that you're operating in. Um, so we're going to hear all about it. Um, could you, though, for people new to this story, like me, uh, give us that one minute overview of the business, and I'll pick it up from there. Okay, so Minbos has had this asset for 10 years. We're listed on the ASX. Um, a couple of years ago, we were still looking at exporting a phosphate rock to the world. Um, and then a little bit by accident, we found out that we could turn the phosphate rock into a, a nutrient that actually works in the Angolan context. Um, so that's what we're focusing on doing because it gives the project a much longer life and much better returns for shareholders and has a much bigger impact in the country. Brilliant, okay. Want to definitely get into that, and we will in a second. I just need to kind of deal with an outlier, and that's your project in Madagascar. What's happening with that? Uh, not a lot. Uh, as we were saying off air, Matthew, um, we went there looking for rare earths, and we found that they were just a little rarer than we'd liked in that location. Uh, it's still interesting. The mineralogy is good. There's some unexplored strike length, and we're talking to a couple of interested parties who are interested because you know they, they like the mineralogy uh, potential, but the phosphate's really our focus now. Okay, so so no time or money being spent on that other than conversation. Uh, conversation and, and, and maintenance, yeah, and discussing with potential uh, suitors. Right. It's kind of interesting because the rare earth, uh, is, the rare earth space is seeing a lot more interest in a renewed interest, certainly since uh, Biden's uh, arrival. And we've got uh, quite a few companies actually seeing some perking up of their share price as a result of being involved with it. Is, is that encouraging you to maybe rethink? Uh, we have an option deal, so there's a number of things that we still have to tick off. We're pretty much, you know, we can't lose the option now, but there's a number of things that we would have to do to tick off that option. So to sort of deal it into a listed space or bring it into a minboss and capture that uh, market appetite or, you know, fantasy for rare earths at the moment, then, you know, there's a few things that preclude us doing that, but we can, with our partner, uh, you know, deal it into another situation, which is what we're 
looking at doing. Okay. Just while we're on it, because I, I, I'm interested in, in, in the space generally, is um, there's a lot of debate between being able to uh, deliver rarest projects outside of China, the, the, the Chinese ecosystem, because of their technical uh, yeah, know-how. Absolutely. Do you do you see that as a a, a barrier or, or a positive? Uh, I think it will force change. Uh, you know, it will force the ecosystem to grow elsewhere. In our particular circumstance, we we went in there knowing that there was a party that was not Chinese but was in China who was interested in our particular mineralogy because they were struggling to find that sort of feed for an existing plant. Uh, so we knew if we found enough, we had a we had a willing partner. One, we didn't quite find enough. And then with the whole Trump-Biden thing, the everything sort of tipped upside down. And so they started looking, you know, back in their other countries and things like that for things. So, yes, I do. I think the... I think the ecosystem will change. Uh, it'll it'll force change because people will want to have multiple accesses to the material. Right. And as so we're talking of ecosystem, slightly different ecosystem, the ESG component around rare earths is can be problematic, certainly perception-wise. Would that be a barrier to being able to develop a project in Madagascar? I think the main barrier for us is just that our phosphate project just overwhelms it. Um, and to have the have the rare earths there is just a complication. So, you know, the vast majority of the people that want to invest in a nutrient project that has a huge social impact in, in Africa are not the same people that want to invest in the rare earth exploitation in Madagascar. So, you know, you, you've got to be honest as a small company sometimes and say, I've got incompatible projects and, you know, give the investor the choice. Right. You know, and get it out get it out into another vehicle or another entity somewhere. So do you think there's any value in it? Pursuing. Do you think there's any value in the Madagascar project? The people that we're talking to do. Um, are you the being, time frame for realising the value? Are you being given any uh, value? Do you think in the market? No, mostly it's an, mostly we're being given earn in earn in numbers for that. Yeah, but, but the, the attitude's changing a little bit with what's going on in the real okay. market. Yeah, but it's up until now it's been earn in discussions. But you know, there's a little bit of upfront money being talked about now. But in, in the context of our project, it's, it's I don't I don't think it's material. Okay, so one, one hold a breath, but maybe <clears throat> maybe some delight further down the line of, of some modest scale. Everything, yeah, anything I, I I consider anything we get for it as a bonus. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. perfect. Okay, let's let, let's focus on the uh, flagship project, the the thing we're here to talk about today. We're going to talk about phosphate now. There's a bit of confusion in the marketplace, so let's get some vocabulary sorted out. Because yeah. in, in the world of fertilizers, broad heading, there's a lot of uh, interchangeability between potash and phosphate. Do so you want to maybe help people understand what the difference is? Uh, yeah, so phosphate is spelt with a P, and, and as it turns out, potash is spelt with a K. <laughs> so, um, so you and then you add in nitrogen, and you end up with NPK. So they're the three macronutrients that all plants require to to eat to get going. Uh, the phosphate's sort of the one that's important at the start uh, to get. It, all plants need the phosphate. Some plants can make their own nitrogen. Some soils have sufficient K for a while. But you know, essentially, if you if if the plant eats all the nutrients, then you've got to feed the soil back with those nutrients. So Phosphate and potassium a little bit. Phosphate helps with the plant establishment. Potassium probably deals more a little bit with the taste. Right. Okay. So they, they perform slightly different functions, but they're sort of broadly thrown into the fertilizer category. One being slightly earlier stage than they the are. Other. They are. So I, I try to explain it to people. I think uh, if you take the baby analogy, you know, if, if the baby doesn't breathe, it's not going to drink. If it doesn't drink, it's not going to eat. So I would put the breathing as like the phosphate. 
Right. Uh, and then the nitrogen is like the drinking and then the potassium is like the eating. So Thank you. Thank that's you. sort of the order. That, that gives you a little bit of a feel for where they sit in the hierarchy scale of nutrients. <laughs> Thank you for that terrifying image, uh, Lindsay. Yes. Uh, which... <laughs> We should, um, right, so now we sort of understand the, the function of, of both because, I, and the reason I think it's important to talk about that is, is understanding the macro environment. So the potash space is, there, there are a handful of producers which produce the, the bulk of the world's yeah. production. Uh, and there are a handful of companies which control the pricing in the market too. What's the story in the world of phosphate? Again, there's another handful, slightly, okay, so, some overlap, but not so much. So phosphate, yeah. So if you want to look at it, it's a very simple way to look at it with the phosphate, the nitrogen, and the potassium again. As you just rightly pointed out with the potassium, there's a handful of players, uh, and, and to get one of those projects up, you usually need a billion dollars or more. Uh, if, if you want to start with a nitrogen project, uh, then there's several handfuls of players, uh, and usually they're associated with a natural gas source, which is the, the feedstock for it. And you're going to be dealing. You're going to be dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars. If you want to start with a, a phosphate source, uh, then you're just digging up some phosphate rock out of the ground. The downstream can be a little bit expensive, but usually you can get a you can get a mine up and running for maybe tens of millions of dollars, not not hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's very different scale, and therefore a very different number of people that are playing in the market uh, on that basis. Okay, so I think again, that's really really important in terms of the barriers to entry. Um, Capex yes. isn't necessarily one of those for for phosphate. Definitely not. Right. Okay. But again, not necessarily. It can be if you're doing phosphoric acid, but if you're just mining phosphate rock and doing something like we do, you know, you can you can see in our study our, our capex is in the twenty to thirty million dollar range. It's, it's right. largely immaterial relative to the project. Okay. So again, let's talk about some of those players in the marketplace and, and, and any control that they have. I, I get the low capex component, but in terms of sales uh, and markets, um, is it controlled in the same way that potash is, or is it? A little bit more open. It's it's very different because, and it's changed in the last two or three years. Um, you know, phosphate rock was, you know, the domain of the mosaics uh, and people like that in the US. But you've seen OCP arise in Morocco and you, you're getting a lot of, in you know, North Africa and Middle East, there's a lot of other players uh, playing in that game. But OCP really uh, has a big impact on the phosphate rock price and also the downstream products now. And so you've seen the the downstream products have gone for an almighty run in the last three or four months. Everything's sort of doubled since we did our scoping study back in August. But the phosphate rock price hasn't really moved. And, you know, I, I would think that, uh, you know, that's a position that I see with because it means most uh, some of their competitors who don't have their own phosphate supplies or phosphate rock supplies have to buy from them. So they can keep a little bit of control. And, you know, to be fair, when we were looking at a phosphate rock export project, we were attracting interest from parties that didn't have their own sources of phosphate rock and were uncomfortable about um, being forced to buy phosphate rock from OCP uh, and at the same time OCP entering very aggressively into the downstream market that they participated in with their phosphoric acid product, products. So it's it, the dynamic in the phosphate industry has changed in the last two or three years. You know, you can see that split between the uh, between the downstream products and the phosphate rock, which is stake flat. Is that sustainable um, in terms of this, this new model, this new break? Because two, three years is not a long time. There's no kind of establishment of, of, of patterns, of players, of pricing, of markets, et cetera. Do you, do you expect it to stay that this way because it's better? Uh, 
nothing sustainable. You know, the number one rule in life is, you know, nobody's allowed to make too much money for too long. So if that happens, then things change. <laughs> okay, so you, you, know, you just gravitate towards changing that. I think, you know, OCP would have the capacity to keep the phosphate rock price low because they have lots and lots and lots of it. And providing they're making money out of their downstream products, then they'll, then they'll have that capacity to do it. What happens in the downstream is a little bit different because, you know, part of the reason we've had this run in the last few months is, you know, Mosaic uh, brought countervailing duties against all of the other players that were bringing products in um, and that, that and that was successfully upheld and so there's been duties imposed on all the other major importers, which sort of has, has flowed down. But we've also seen a consolidation, a little bit of consolidation in that downstream area um, and, you know, I, I would suspect that the the big guys are probably going to do their very level best without collusion to ensure that that remains a pretty small party um, and, and, and the profits uh, profits accrue to them. So I think we'll see, um, I think the model will sustain for a while, but if uh, if they make too much money for too long, then other parties will come to the game somehow if they can source some phosphate rock. Okay, we better talk about your project and what, what it is that you know you've got currently because i i'm interested in that part of it how do you as a company well, currently small company insert yourself into that supply chain without necessarily affecting your ability to make margin you know because if there's oversupply supply demand yeah you know it's going to cause to problems right so uh let's talk about what you've got first and we're going to deal with the economic components yeah so look the first question first firstly i'll say i don't think we'll cause problems and in fact i think some of the big the strategic thinkers in in the bigger guys are, look, are looking at what we're doing and say, actually, that's really useful. Uh, and, I, and I'll come back. I'll, I'll come back to why. But, you know, our, our project is a small phosphate rock deposit in Cabinda, in Angola. It has high grade. It's always been, everybody's known it's high quality. Um, there's notionally 10 or 20 million tonnes there, but there's about six and a half, maybe eight, you know, if we drill it out a little bit more, of material that runs at 30 to 30.5%. Um, and many phosphate rocks in the mine struggle to achieve that sort of grade for a product after they've beneficiated. So to just dig it up at the ground out of sand and just have it fall apart in your hands like that at 30.5 is, is, is really cool. Um, what we found with that, obviously, as you come into our production models, we found with just by adding a small amount of water-soluble phosphate with it, it, it will dissolve because most phosphate rocks won't dissolve. So you can stick them on your roses and nothing happens, or you can stick them on the, your corn and nothing happens. What's interesting for us is one of the things that's important there is you need a, a high rainfall uh, acid soil environment, which you typically get in your tropical and subtropical situation and Angola's uh, no different uh, to that. So if you wanted to take this and put it into Western Australia where there's no rain, no chance. If you want to take it somewhere where there's a neutral soil, no chance, it's not going to work. So it works really, really well in the context. So, you know, I've said in other presentations, Angola's quite a little bit lucky here because this phosphate rock is deposit is almost the perfect phosphate rock deposit for, for what they're trying to do. From a market point of view, um, you know, for a number of social, geographical, um, historical factors, Angola's really got a very, very small agricultural sector. And that is driven uh, you know, they had well they had quite a lot pre, you know, when you know, pre-independence. That sort of all died for a number of different factors. And so their fertiliser market and their agricultural market is really, really small. So it's very, very difficult for the bigger guys to come in at the scale that they want to come in and say, look, I'm bringing down a ship full of 
this particular product when there's nobody who wants a ship full of that particular product. So in some ways, our advantage is that we can start small. So we can start at a small scale and ship two to 5,000 tonnes around to the different ports and make slightly different recipes and get it there. And that's why I think some of the strategic thinkers in the bigger companies are looking at us and going, actually, this is a really good idea because for the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, it's not about market share. It's not about how much market share I can get there. It's actually about growing the market. Um, so if I'm wildly successful, and that's fantastic for them because you'll find in middle Africa in a few years' time there's a half a million tonne a year market, and then all of a sudden they can bring down sophisticated products at the boatload scale uh, and, and enter into a market that we develop. But I think we will play an important role in developing that market for the bigger guys, which they can't really exploit at the moment just because of their requirements of scale. So, so just on that, let me ask you. So you were mixing with, um, the phosphate rock with water-soluble phosphate, why are you doing that and does it even work? Um, yes. It, yes, and we're doing it because it works really, really well and particularly in the context of Angola. So what the water-soluble phosphate does is, is it provides two things. One we call the starter effect and the other one we call the enhancement effect. The starter effect is the water-soluble phosphate dissolves really quickly and makes itself available for the plant. Um, like we're talking about the baby breathing, away it goes and establishes the root and then it's able to, to take on all the other nutrients. What we call the enhancement effect is the water-soluble phosphate, if you choose the right one, can actually assist to start the dissolution of the phosphate rock. Um, some phosphate rocks dissolve, well, the vast majority of them do not. We've got one that's sort of on the cusp of wanting to resolve, dissolve. It will dissolve, but it won't dissolve fast enough for the plant to eat it. So by putting a little bit of water-soluble phosphate in there for the plant to eat first and then help to get the phosphate rock dissolving, uh, it, it works quite well. The IFDC, the boffins there, have known this works for 30, 40 years. What we've got in Angola is this is the first time where you've got actually a suitable phosphate rock source in a climate uh, where you've got high rainfall and acidic soils, which are necessary for it, in a market that hasn't been developed yet. So it's got the scope to actually fit in, fit into the market, whereas it's not competing in like Australia or the US where there's already a very, very sophisticated market. So I think everybody's known that it works. We just haven't had the, we just haven't had the market dynamics that's actually suited the development of a project like this before. So it's quite, it's quite unique. And we found it out by accident. What do you mean you found it by accident? What does that mean? Well, when we're looking at the phosphate rock deposit to export it, um, you know, somebody uh, on the other side of the project had actually said, promised the government that they would make a local product. And I said, you, you do understand that phosphate rock does not dissolve and you can't do that. That's impossible. Um, so they said, well, we won't be able to have a project if we do. So I took, we were making a, a very fine dust as a, a, a reject uh, from the benefit process and it still had 20% phosphate so I took that across the IFDC and said this is really really fine do you think it will dissolve any better than that? the other stuff and they said no 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 chemistry is too important but we have an idea so they they just planted it and they said oh we'll have a look at that and then it worked so well I said well why are we trying to export the rest of it for $80 a tonne when it can do this so then we did another greenhouse trial where we we ran it that way and then we did another greenhouse trial on top of that and then we've done some field trials that we're testing different things to see how well it works and how we can make it work better. Um, but, yeah, it was large, largely by accident, just look, looking at what we could do maybe with a reject product to sell it at a mine gate to some of the locals. Uh, yeah, pretty amazing. So you're, you're going to entirely focus your marketing efforts on a domestic sales 
uh, structure. Absolutely. Right. The mar margins, are, margins are so much better than looking at exports. So when I say domestic, um, domestic and regional. So the neighbouring countries, so things that we could usefully, usefully uh, uh, beachhead into with, you know, with a tug and barge um, transportation scenario. We're not putting on, we're not putting it onto deep draft vessels. Right. Okay. As you say, you could have then developed that that whole agricultural, you know, sales structure where people are well currently are they using supplements either for the soil or for the plants from elsewhere? Yes, they are. Uh, they are, but some places are not. And so one of the things we've done uh, is sign a memorandum of understanding with the International Fertiliser Development Centre, and that is really key And that, uh, because uh, in, in addition to developing fertilisers, which they've assisted with the, the product that we're going to use, uh, they've morphed in the last 20 or so years to running programs where they take countries that don't use a lot of nutrients and they build them up, and, they, and particularly with a focus on the small landholder, uh, farmers. So recently, they did a program in Burundi over five years, where they took you know consumption from ten thousand tons to fifty thousand tons, and they almost hit about a million million small landholders. In Angola, we can see there's four million small landholders in the same situation. We'd expect that to be able to go to one hundred and fifty thousand tons, which you know roughly uh, matches up with our first 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 phase of development. The very important thing for us is, you know, for example, IFTC goes into Burundi, holds hands with the Burundi government. You get a single point of sale. So I'm essentially selling a 25 kilogram bag to four million small landholders, but I've got one. I've only got one number in my refidex. Um, so for when I'm going to finance that with the bank, so I'm sort of getting a little sovereign imprimatur plus a, a well-funded uh, not-for-profit behind, as, as essentially as my customer. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm just saying, this is the fascinating bit to me because, because that's your strategy is one, you've got to displace existing, uh, suppliers of similar really? products. Not a, not, not a lot. Not a not lot. Not a lot. Because a lot of these people are not, not, a lot of these farmers are not, not using very much nutrient at all. Um, so then what becomes important is understanding, well, do they do, you know, do they want to actually produce twice as much corn? Well, if they're hungry, they do. Um, or alternatively, am I just using twice as much land or am I using twice as much labour? Can I actually halve my land use, can, which obviously has environmental implications, or can I halve my labour input, which has implications for, you know, social implications for children being able to go to school and things like that. So these are the things that IFTC have run out in several programs and they understand the nuances of that and how you actually take that additional market or yield productivity and get it into either people's mouths or into the market for other people's right. mouths. Right. So, but let's talk, let's talk about that. Ownership. Let's talk about the process though, because you've got to let them try it. Okay. They're, they're, okay. I, I hear you about the displacement component. You know, that's a bit of a longer cycle because you're having to persuade people yours is better than theirs. And they're going to have to try it over one or two different growing seasons. I, you know, I imagine they're quite short growing seasons um, down there and let them test it, you know, with small quantities at a time. And if they see the benefit of that, they accept it. They may tell other people about it. So how long does that whole process take before in terms of that ramp up? And, and what and how much control so do in, you have? In so in the Burundi situation, they ramped up from, as I said, from 10,000, I think over 50, almost 60,000 tonnes uh, in four to five years. And we'd see a similar ramp up. And in the area that uh, where these, uh, you're getting me enthusiastic now, I'm jumping into this conversation. So the, the area that we see in Angola, the area, the area that we see in Angola that, that fits that is about 10 million, 10 million hectares, which is three times the size of Burundi. 
So the IFTC guys are really, really enthusiastic with this because this project can make probably a bigger difference than any other projects they've been involved in. So that's the time scale for the rollout. And if you have the government buy-in on this, this all works. And one of the things or one of the attributes of the program the IFTC brings is they've, they've worked out quite a unique um, voucher system, which essentially is a way of distributing a subsidy, but they can bring a subsidy system into the small landholders without actually displacing product into and, and hurting the private sector, which needs to be getting established and working. We want to work with them, obviously, as well as they actually start to sell product and more sophisticated product at higher volumes to the commercial farmers as that emerges in Angola as well. Okay, good, because they, so we will get back to the ASA and the, the actual project, because we've got to get it out of the ground and we've yeah. got it before you get to this point. But I I always find the sales bit kind of important because you've got to look forward and be able to kind of project, you know, sales curves, et cetera, and what it's going to take to do that. And sounds like some of the, well, a significant part of the cost is going to be borne by others, not you. So that, that's, yes. I guess, good news. Um, but as you are part of the solution, which expands the use of, say, fertilizers broadly, phosphate or, other, or potash, whatever, um, it does make it an interesting environment for other competitors to kind of step in. And that's when they kind of, I guess, the marketing fight uh, begins or, or, or changes because there will be competition, right? I think so. And, I, you know, I've, I've talked to one of my directors about this, you know, Valentine Chitula, who's the founder of the Fatisa Fund. And, you know, when we're talking about him coming on board, uh, on, on the Nimbos board, I say, you know, look, if, you know, if I'm really, really successful in this in, in 10 years' time, you know, uh, I may actually have created a market for somebody else. And, and his view is, look, Africa is Africa. There'll always be a market for this for this type of product. Um, but it doesn't matter which fertilizer market you go to in the world. And you know, talking to our uh, talking to the commodity consultants, they recognise this about sub-Saharan African market as well. If you look back at Australia seventy odd years ago, we were a super phosphate market, which is basically just phosphate rock mixed with a little bit of sulfuric acid. That worked really, really well for us because it was cheap. In fact, the government used to subsidise it and encourage people to put it on. And we were, you know, in a lot of places we were just doing grazing and superphosphate worked quite well for grazing. And a lot of our soils in Australia were sulphur poor. So putting superphosphate on uh, made a lot of sense. And it was almost exclusively the only phosphate fertile that was utilised. But over the last sort of 60, 70 years, you know, the farming has matured. We're now doing a lot of cropping. You know, we're now doing, you know, bi-location fertilisation to match the, the soil and yield and liming and all sorts of things like that. And the number of products that we're bringing in, the sophistication of those products has improved enormously. So, you know, what I would say to people is you never start a unsophisticated agriculture scenario with a sophisticated fertiliser or the other way around. You know, the sophistication of their farming techniques and the sophistication of the fertiliser grow together. You know, you, you, you can look at the models in the rest of the world. That doesn't happen in five years. Um, that does actually happen over several decades. So, um, you know, I think we've got enough time to get our return back before the big guys come in and say thank you. But probably by that time, I, I think we'll have a distribution network that will be very, very valuable to some of the big guys as well. Right. Okay. Which in itself is, is, is yeah, I say valuable, very valuable. Um, should we get back to reality, back to where we are today? Stop looking forward, which is which is the fun bit. That's the spreadsheet exercise. It is. Um, let's focus on where you are today. Okay, 35, 36 million market cap. Um, you've got how much money in the bank? Uh, eight. eight. Eight million Aussie. Okay. How are we going to use that? How do we move this project forward? So th- Okay, so three and a half million is designated for a DFS. 
uh, of which the engineering component will be finished by July and the approvals process will be finished by November. We'll be taking it to lenders, um, you know, starting to warm their credit committees up uh, you know, in, in July with the numbers and then bringing the approvals and the tick boxes through uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, there are a number of other opportunities. You know, we're talking about distribution networks and other little bolt-on organic things that we can essentially option up, which we may or may not use that uh, the rest of the money on. And I think just, you know, with COVID, where it is, uh, having a little bit extra in your sleeve um, for delays or anything like that, I think, uh, I think it was important and the board, the board felt that way. We didn't mean to be going back and putting the Chauvin project at jeopardy for the sake of three or four months worth of travel delays or something like that. Right, okay. So that, that's fairly imminent. DFS fairly imminent. Um, and there's nothing to suggest. Yes. Nothing untowards, certainly not that you've talked about in, in press releases that would suggest the economics can change greatly in that time. You're just firming up on on some of the yeah. Look, the, the 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 major piece of equipment, the major component of the capex, which is sort of sitting in the 22 to 27 range in our scoping study, is six million dollars US of a of a, of a granulation plant for an OEM, well-known OEM. So you know we've got to get it over there and we've got to construct it. But you know that that number's not going to change. And most of the other things are you know already you know we've got costings on you know indicative costings on the mining and stuff like that. So yeah, it's not a it's not a very complicated project. Okay, so let's let's talk let's talk let's 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 assume the DFS is as you think it's going to be. Um, you can't do a build it and they shall come strategy, and you certainly can't get funding off the back of that. So, how does it work in the world of uh, phosphate? In the world of phosphate, it's slightly different. So we're in a slightly different world. So you know we're working away feverishly with the IFDC. Um, and we'll start engaging with the IFDC and the Angolan government um, and we'll endeavour to put in place at least a relationship between the IFDC and the Angolan government or all three of us. Um, and then we'll we'll take we'll you know generate what they call a concept note for the program that the IFTC is going to run, which will then attract funding from their usual set of donors. And I think we've got one or two people that might be interested in that as well. Uh, I think Angola will buy into it. Um, the reasons for that is they awarded the tender to us in the first place, and this is what we proposed in the tender. So that you know, I know that I know they have bought into it. Uh, they've also been publishing that they need to diversify their economy, and, and agriculture is one of the things where they really want to put some effort because you know it's only a decade ago where they're importing up something like eighty to ninety percent of their food. So you know they're really in a and and the exchange rate didn't favour them doing anything like that. So you know they've got a position now where they can actually encourage uh, an agricultural sector where they probably could talk the talk ten years ago, but it was just impossible because the oil and the diamonds swamped everything else. Yeah, really did. So I've got to get Angola, IFTC lined up. Right. Uh, but what, that's, what, 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 that's, what does that mean? What actually? I need to do in the next six months. But what does that mean? What, how much are they coming in for? Are they giving you all the money you require? Are you going to require additional uh, outside money? I think they can. Money? I think they can. Will they? No, no, no. So it'll be no. That'll that'll be donor money. So the the program in Burundi, for example, I think was thirty three million over five years. Um, and that was partly funded by Burundi and partly funded by donors from the IFTC. So the same donors from the IFTC are interested. Um, we think that Angola has the capacity and probably the willingness to assist in that area. And I think we have one or two people that might be interested in it from our side as well, which would which would get it there. Yeah. Right. So what, what, explain what donor. Uh, and, that's, and that's donor money. You know, what does that mean? Like they're funding a program. Equity? You know, Is that equity? Like, no, donor money. Donor money to the IFTC, not to us. But to the IFTC, right? Yeah. But what about? But what you've about, never heard that sales pitch before. <laughs> you'd be surprised. I have. It's, it's it's pretty fundamental, and you know, I think, you know, because we developed the product with the IFTC, we became aware of their programs and what they were doing, and thought, 
okay, if I, if I can make a product like this work, then they've got the programs that they can roll out there and, they have, and they've got the people that are interested in funding that behind, which takes away the banking risk for me. Um, and I explained that to them as well. And they, they, they make it. What I'm trying to get at is for this audience listening to it, maybe some people haven't heard, have not heard this language. I, I for the benefit of working in Africa for many years, so I'm, you know, I'm okay. But for, for this audience, like when you're talking about donor money and uh, IDFs, uh, IFDC, they're going, well, do I get diluted or do I not get diluted as an investor? No, it's non-dilutionary to Minbus. Yeah, that's the main thing. Yeah, so it's so it's it's and if we, if I bring money in for that, that'll be money that uh, we've sourced for people from people that we know that are interested in this sort of work. And you know, ideally, that'll go straight into the sort of the IFDC program account. So I think the program in Burundi was very strongly funded by the Netherlands government. Um, IFDC itself is probably sixty percent funded by US aid. Um, OCP, I think, is a is a funder of uh, some of the initiatives of uh, of IFDC as well. So there's, they've got a quite wide ranging, um, uh, you know, chatterbox of donors. Got it. So just want to be clear. So the seven point three million bucks you raised earlier this well last month, February, that's the last time you're going to be raising money going forward. Yeah, so we should, that, that will get us through to our uh, financial drawdown. And if we get a little bit delayed on that, it, we've got enough there. So uh, the long lead critical items, like you know, getting the manufacturing of the granulation plant, we can place a deposit on that and get that um, going so that doesn't hold us up. Right, okay. And again, because so, these relationships are important, so IFTC and, and, and you and others, what does that mean in terms of your control over this project? Not just, just the, the physical asset, but also the, the building of it. Uh, so we will enter into a supply arrangement with with the, with this program, and and they will enter into a contract for the offtake, and we will map it out. So we're doing a lot of work now with remote sensing. You know, we we, we know where these people are. They're mainly in Wheel of Wombo and uh, Kwanzaa Sul provinces. Um, you go into Google Earth, you just go down. It looks like a patchwork quilt. So we're doing a lot of work now with remote sensing people. So here's where the land is. Is it an annual crop, perennial crop, biannual crop? Um, we can make some decisions on which of those are suitable for our product. How far away are they from the infrastructure routes? Because you've got to remember, if, if a guy's buying this, he's taking a 25-kilogram bag, he's putting on the handlebars, he's push bike, and he's going home. If he's 100 kilometres from a, uh, if he's 100 kilometres from a distribution point, he's not the first guy we're targeting. So we need to map out, you know, how do we grow over the five years? How do we grow this distribution network so it fingers out and catches the people that are uh, easy to get to on that? And it's a little bit of work, and we'll, you know, we started. And by we, and by we, you mean the IFDC? We, uh, IFDC, Angola, and a number of people that have usually helped the IFDC on some of these programs as well. So there's, there's people out there that have also have access to funds for, you know, like remote sensing, crop mapping uh, in Africa, soil mapping in Africa. You know, there's, so there's, there's I, I can't believe, I, I didn't believe how many people are out there putting money into this, trying, trying to get things going. Right. Okay. That's important. I understand why. Absolutely. I guess, again, what I'm trying to get at is how much can you drive the agenda? Can you push the rollout? Can you affect the speed at which this this happens? Or you're kind of coming along for the ride, as it were, because you own the assets. No, so up until November, I would have been uh, probably not taking that, not taking this interview in case you ask me that question. <laughs> Um, but we got introduced to the team that's responsible for this part of the operation of IFDC in December and entered into an MOU. 
um, and they are super enthusiastic about this. Uh, you know, this is, you know, they, they see this as a Rolls-Royce program that will really, because it, it's not only one where they get to roll out the program, but it's the first time they get to roll out a program with a product that they developed and using a locally sourced product. Usually when they roll out a program, they're using an imported source product. And they understand the benefits of, there's huge benefits of making just one of your nutrient granules inside your country. You know, not only just on the, the flexibility to develop your agriculture sector, but the ability to actually put micronutrients into that that not only help the plant, but actually help the people. So you know the IFDC just looks at this and goes oh wow we want to do this so they're they're pushing me really really fast at the moment okay. I'm struggling to keep up actually because they're in the wrong time zone for me right yes of course um and, and then just and then the other bit of it's about control all of this is about control right because with those relationships there's a bit of give and take right you you've got a for the money non-dilutive money shareholders should be pleased but you perhaps lose a little mm. bit of control in the sense not just in the sense of the the the, the pace to it but with with regards to whatever agreement you guys come up with you know in terms of they're going to be buying your product on the with the offtake yeah, so we'll, we'll need to see how that pan aren't they so how do you control uh, that I don't think so I don't think so. So we'll look, even if it was at a discount, I'd be very, very happy with our margins because, you know, because the market is so small, the markup in Angola is really, really high. So we, we'd be struggling to actually get to that markup and we can, you know, we can make a really, really good margin. This is why I'm so interested in the domestic market. The mar you know, we can make a really good margin for our investors and affect all of the social good that we want to affect. And that was a part of the platform for our tender. You know, one of the, one of the requirements in the tender was we want to establish a local fertilizer industry. Um, you need to be cognizant of that. We want to make sure that we make a good return for the investors. You know, Angola's at a post-oil you know, a post hundred dollar oil phase, they need an economy that's diversified. The only way they're going to get an economy that's diversified is if they attract new capital. So if I can be, you know, I've sort of almost given them an undertaking that I will do no worse than a 25% return um, because it's important for Angola, for for the rest of the world to see, hey, look, Lindsay went there with Minbos. He did a project. They helped him get the project up and running. And look at that, he's making 25% plus. Well, it turns out I think we can make quite substantially more than that and still offer a, a nutrient cost benefit for the, for the people in Angola. So it's a, you know, it's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm, I like it. Is the I love it. When companies use ESG, do you like using that phrase or is it just actually, I'm just going to be a good citizen in a country that I've been invited into? That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. And I bumped into an old boss of mine uh, who I work with as a you know broking analyst 25 years ago. And he, without realising what we've done and, you know, signing up for a, an ESG measuring and reporting platform, uh, he said, oh, this ESG, he says, it's just, it's just greenwashing. And I, I can understand that accusation. So from, from our perspective, it was slightly different. You know, our board took a good hard look at this and we resolved to adopt this. You know, I, I think the, the statements that are behind ESG, you know, planet, you know, people, prosperity, you know, the, it's hard to go away from them. It's hard to ignore them. Uh, in terms of what it does for us, it, you know, from an investor point of view, there's a lot of people out there that like the social impact uh, connotations and taste of our investment. So it's no point in having not not observing the ESG tech tick lists that they're all going to require to be able to invest in. So we don't want to preclude anybody from investing in a project that they really, really like because we haven't actually done the ESG tick boxes like they have. 
from a governance point of view, which is the other element of ESG, it's actually quite interesting because when you look back at risk, you know, risk went from being sort of like a, a passive statement to a risk framework where you want to analyse what you're doing and you reassess your appraisals and things like that. I think this is what what we're doing with our monitoring and reporting system is it takes it takes ESG and, and whatever that means from being a passive policy statement which says, yes, we are a good company. Why are we a good company? Because we told you we are a good company. We have a good company policy. Um, you know, so, but with when you actually sit down, you say, "Look, I've got the twenty-two or twenty-three actually points with all the sub points under it." You sit down as a board every time you have a board meeting. So, right, we said we were going to move further down the step of actually gone from you know planned to developed to verified to audited on 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 this process. You know, this one here, we understand we're a different part of the project, and we're actually going to stagnate there on that particular part of the. So it takes it from being a passive statement to something that their board actively engages with and says, you know, actually, I'm, I'm not just saying I'm a good citizen. This actually gives me a framework for which I can actually monitor and look and say, okay, I can't measure it. I can't change it. Um, so, so to that extent, yeah, it is, a, it is a buzzword, but for our particular project, it was necessary because of its social impact. We, we needed to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think it's, it's, as you say, it can be used very casually just to meet a tick box from a fund. But in your case, it seems more imperative than that, given where your money's coming from and where your market's going to be. And, you know, we, we need, you know, to be fair to the IFDC and the people that are giving the money to them, we, we need to do this for them as well. You know, it's not fair to ask them to come in and donate money to establish a market, albeit the cause being very noble, if we're sitting in the background not observing the things that we're actually, we should be. So it, it is important for the project at many levels. Right. Okay. Um, DFS gets um, done. What happens? How quickly? When's this money coming in? So money comes in, uh, you know, ideally at the end of the year, probably early next year, uh, and we get a plant underway and getting constructed next year with a view to having a few little bags of product ready to go for the planting season 2022-23. Okay. Pretty, all pretty imminent. That's it, Lindsay. It's, I, that, uh, that's all you've got to do. Easy. Uh, well, it's, well, the hard, you know, I think you're right. The hard, the hard part is actually you know, the, the beachheading on the market because once we've, once we've finished with the, once we've finished, or once we've sort of, got the what we call the grow to eat market uh, under our belt. Then we start to move into the grow to sell. And I think there's enormous potential for Angola to, to turn into a grow to export market. It was a great exporter in the past. It's got lots of land, unutilised, high rainfall, close to coast. It should be an exporter of food products again uh, at, at a very large scale. Um, so there's, there's, I think uh, Angola could be a very, very large fertiliser market for the big guys to fight over in 10, 15 years' time. And, and, and you think that's kind of, you've got to set yourself up for that if you are to monetize that yourselves. Because it's you grow the market and then you can fight the big boys or you can go, do you know what? We've got the sales routes into market well established. We've got customers. You know, like a, the, I think our scoping, study had a base, our scoping study had a base case NPV after tax of about 210. It's probably... You know, the phosphate jump in prices probably added, I don't know, 70 to 100 to that uh, in, in the recent weeks. Um, but if you take, for example, I think uh, 18 months ago, there was a distributor in uh, on the east, eastern side of Africa called Meridian, um, and they just distributed product. Uh, uh, you know, the Saudis came and paid in 40 million US for, 
for that asset, and that's just like a distribution network. So, you know, a distribution network into a, a broad market has a lot of value because the big guys have a, a much broader range of profit, broader range of products that they can prosecute down that distribution network than I will have. So, I think eventually that distribution network will have um, more value to somebody else than it has to us. Gotcha. Lindsay, appreciate your time today. Thank you for telling us this story. Um, We will follow it with great interest. Um, One or or two more things to deliver, but pretty close. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, you don't get grey hair like this without being uh, close to the end of your career, and this is a great project to finish off on. It's just, um, you know, big win for investors and uh, if we pull it off it's just huge for Angola the, the change for Angola will be massive it'll, it'll be transferred it'll, yeah it'll be huge and your shareholders shareholders will uh, when you look at the things that are in the background that we don't even talk about today I don't think the shareholders have got any idea how big this can be thank you for listening if you've enjoyed the interview why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.